All right, as promised, part two uh, in Colossians chapter one. So if you have your Bible, let's open together to Colossians chapter one. If you don't have a Bible or forgot a Bible, um, that's okay. We've got the uh, text printed for you in the bulletin. And, and I want to say this on a, on a regular occasion. I want to say it every Sunday. But if you don't have a Bible and you want one, let me know. Um, I'm not going to get you a, uh, a cheap one. We'll get you a good one. Um, so if you don't have one and you want one, come grab me after the service. I'd love to take, take care of that for you. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at the same passage we looked at last week. Um, this is one of those passages that tortures pastors. Um, I, I compared it to orange concentrate. There is so much meat. There is so much information in this passage. Even two sermons can't cover it all. So this is one of those sermons where you're cutting and slashing and editing and going. You just can't put it all in there. You've got to keep it simple. Um, but that being said, um, one, one thought before we, we read our text uh, together. Um, the ancients believed that history was like a wheel. History was cyclical. And to be more specific, um, there's a branch of, of Buddhism that believes that the earth kind of goes through a cycle every million, every million years. It starts with birth and growth and development that turns into life and prosperity and delight and joy, then it begins to decompose and then it ends in destruction and decay. And then after a million years, it starts over, kind of like a phoenix with rebirth. And we're just kind of like on this endless cycle of history that as far as we know never had a beginning and as far as we know will never have an end. And sometimes, even as, as believers and Christians, it, it, tell me if this isn't true, we, we tend to act like that's true. Theologically, we would say, no, 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 that's not, that's not where history is going. That's not what's going to happen. We know how the story ends, but we live that way, as if this life is, is, is meaningless. We're just on this cycle, our round of this cycle, and there's really nothing for us to do here and now. Um, but as we well know, um, our gospel, what Jesus Christ is doing in, in history, um, is, is not a cycle. Um, it does have a definite end, and it ends with resurrection. It ends with glory. It ends with joy. It ends with the new creation. So how do we live like that? How do we live like that's true? Like history has a, a climax. It's going to come to a conclusion and a glorious one one full of joy and goodness. How do we live like that? Paul's going to show us uh, in this passage. Again, this is Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 13 and read through verse 23. Uh, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. It was about seven years ago, uh, this time of year, it was the beginning of, of fall, and uh, the children and I and Paige were walking in our backyard in Greenville, South Carolina. The, the trees were starting to turn colors. Um, the grass uh, was losing its, its greenness. It was starting to kind of turn brown for, for the fall. And then over on this dogwood tree was, was the largest and brightest caterpillar we've ever seen. And uh, I wish I had a, a picture of it. It was about the size of, of one of my fingers. It was the biggest caterpillar we've, we've ever seen. So naturally, what we and the kids did was we got this little bug box that we have. It's got a little door on it. It's made out of, like, screen material. And we got the caterpillar, and we stuck it in the box, put some leaves, and we put some sticks and some fruit in there and some things that we thought it would eat just to see what would happen over the next couple days. And I can't remember if it was 24 hours or 48 hours later, uh, it had spun itself into a giant cocoon. And so we thought, well, this will be great. We're going we're gonna to hold on to it. Let's see what happens come spring. So it stayed out on the counter for a while. Then it kind of got in the way. And, and, and then we, we stuck it, you know, in one of our kids' rooms. And then, and then it kind of got in the way there too. And then it ended up, and I don't know how this happened, it ended up in the top of a closet for the winter for the better part of the, of the winter. And then the end of January came around, and one day Paige was, was cleaning in one of the, the children's rooms, and she heard a noise from the closet. And of course, at first it, it scared her, but then she realized the noise is coming from the bug box. And so she was able to grab it, reach it, and pull it down, and inside was the empty cocoon, and, and in its place was this giant moth and I actually put a picture in your bulletin. So flip back to the first page on the inside cover. That is my hand. And I've got pretty decent sized hands for a dude. That is how big the moth was inside of that, that bug box. Uh, it almost took up the entire, the entire space inside. It actually took us like a, a little bit of time to actually get it out of the box itself uh, because it was so big. Uh, it's called a, a polyphemus, and it's got that, uh, those two eyes on the wings, kind of as like a natural defense to kind of scare away predators. Um, incredible, incredible thing to witness. Um, we've all read the books. We remember, you know, our science and our ecology classes, you know, back when we were in middle school. We, we saw the pictures, the before, the during, the after of the caterpillar, the chrysalis, and the cocoon, and then finally the butterfly that comes afterwards. Um, but it's something different altogether when you witness it firsthand, when you actually get to see it. 
and when you actually get to hold it. And what I would suggest, you know, what makes this, this phenomenon so interesting is, is this. It's not only just watching the process, but here's what kind of blows our minds. If, if you had seen the caterpillar over here, and if over here you saw the moth, you would assume, if you didn't know any better, you would assume that these were two different creatures entirely because they look so different. They act so different. You know, six months ago, this was a ground-crawling, you know, leaf-eating, bright green caterpillar. Now, uh, with painted wings, you've got this, this moth that can fly anywhere and, and move 100 times faster than it could before as a caterpillar. We would assume that these creatures are, are entirely separate creatures, but per God's design, per creation, these two, these two creatures are actually the same thing. They're the same creature, just transformed into something new entirely. That process and, and getting to see that firsthand reminded me of something that Jesus said in Revelation. Um, it's one of my favorite passages. He said, Behold, I am making all things new. And notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, I'm making all new things. Like, all of these things are broken. Therefore, I'm going to make all new things. Notice what he says. He says, I'm making all things that exist brand new. So, in a way, what, what Jesus here is communicating is that from, you know, down to the very last molecule, to the smallest caterpillar, to every one of us, none of this is going away, but one of Christ's last great works on this earth is going to be this, this, this spiritual act of metamorphosis, of turning us, turning this world into something new entirely, while still retaining our identity, who we are. We get to transform into something, into something new. Well, before Jesus said this in Revelation, Paul was preaching this, this idea of, of being a new creation to the church in Colossae. And uh, I want to highlight two things here uh, that he teaches. First, um, Jesus the Creator. That's my first point. And then second, Jesus and the new creation. So Jesus the Creator, and then secondly, Jesus and the new creation. Paul is very clear in this passage to communicate to Colossae and to us that this Jesus, this man who came to live on the earth for 33 years, is none other. He wears many titles, many hats, but this man that we all saw, that we got to touch, that we got to see, this man is the Creator. Um, notice how this is highlighted in this passage. Verse 16, for by Him, again speaking of Jesus, by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. What Paul goes to great lengths to say is that everything in creation, everything that we see, even everything we don't see, even powers, even people who have been given position of authority uh, in our cities, in our nation, in our world, all of these things have been created by God. And, and we hear that and we kind of go like, that's lost its punch. What is the big deal about God being the creator? I mean, after all, we've got some right-brained people in this room. 
right? A lot of our work revolves around the creative arts. We create all the time, right? So what's the big deal? God creates, we create, we're image bearers. What's the big deal? Let's, make, let's, let's split hairs for a moment. Um, let's differentiate between creating and recreating. Only God can create, and because we're finite and we don't have the power that God has, we only have the limited power and ability to recreate. Only God can create. We recreate. Let me illustrate. Imagine in your mind a BMW or whatever luxury car you prefer. And imagine um, Henry Ford who built the first car. If he were alive today and if he could look at that BMW, brand new 2020 BMW, imagine his amazement. Imagine his wonder at what has become the automobile, how fast it can go, Uh, the tires, um, the wood grain interior, uh, the soft leather, uh, the shiny chrome, the reflective glass. Um, We would be tempted, like Henry Ford, to go, look at what we created. We are pretty awesome. We have made a BMW. That's pretty awesome. Um, But consider this at the same time. When you think about like the tires on a car, where did those tires come from? They came from petroleum in the ground. And where did that petroleum come from? God put it there. God made it at creation. So what we've done is we've taken that petroleum, we've recreated it and reformed it, refashioned it into what? Into tires. We've done the same thing with wood. Where did that wood grain interior come from? It came from trees. Where did those trees come from? We didn't make those. God made those. What about that steel? What about that aluminum that makes the frame and that makes the body? What about that glass that makes the windshield? Where did that come from? It came from the ground. We took all that iron out of the ground that God made, that God put there, and we've refashioned it. We've purified it, we've reshaped it, and we've turned it into a BMW. Do you see the difference between creating and recreating? Creating is is by the word of His power, with just His words, Jesus spoke everything into creation, everything we see, everything we don't see. With just a strike of His vocal cords, He spoke, and it was day, and it was night. And there were flying creatures, and there were creepy crawly creatures. There was water, there was land. He just spoke it into existence. And what we've done as as a humanity is we've done what we ought to do. What He's told us to do is take this creation and rule over it, lord over it, recreate it into amazing and awesome things like BMWs. But notice the distinction. Christ holds a power and a rank, being the Creator, that we do not have. We cannot speak things into existence. We do not have the power to create. I think this is why David, when he prays that great prayer in the Psalms, using, again, Genesis 1 and 2 language, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, because David understands this distinction. Only God can create. Only God can take my heart where there's blackness, where there's darkness, where there is no life, and actually turn it into something good. 
God, you're going to have to do Genesis 1 and 2 all over again on my insides if we're going to have fellowship. We can't create, but we can recreate. More on that in, in just a minute. Paul calls him the creator, but he's also, he gives him this interesting title in verse 15. Look at the second part of that verse. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What does that title mean? What does it mean to be the firstborn of all creation? It's not meant to suppose that at some point Jesus was not, um, and now He was. Um, That's not what it's trying to communicate here. Remember, we're in a Jewish culture. We're in the first century. Imagine as you know, a, a, a Jewish migrant that has, has gone to Colossae, you're hearing these words about Jesus. That he's calling Jesus the firstborn. He's calling Him the heir of all creation. This is familial language. Remember the, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, this father had two, had two male offspring, and we know how the story goes. The younger wanted his inheritance, And so what you were entitled to in Jewish culture was if you had two sons, your oldest son gets two-thirds of everything you have when you die. And then your younger son only gets one-third. That was just tradition. That's how it went. Uh, And so in the parable of the prodigal son, the younger son asks for his inheritance early. And so he gets his third, and he goes off, and as the story knows, he squanders it. But when it comes to the cosmos… When it comes to the Father, He has only one Son, and that Son is Jesus Christ. And so what that means is that does not entitle Him to two-thirds of what the Father owns. It doesn't entitle Him to one-third of what the Father owns. It entitles Him to it all. If this universe, if every grain of sand had a deed attached to it, Jesus Christ would say, it is mine. He is the rightful heir, the rightful owner of everything, of all we see and of all we don't see. That's what it means to be the firstborn, the heir of all creation. All of it uh, belongs to Him. What's interesting is that this title is not just something that Paul came up with. He didn't create this. This title of being the firstborn is actually a very Old Testament word and title. Israel was called God's firstborn in Exodus chapter 4. And then in Psalm 89 is the first time you hear about this Messiah who's going to come, and and, and God says, this is going to be my son, my heir, this Messiah who's coming. So Paul's not being creative here. He's not being flowery. He's actually connecting some dots here to go, as Israel was, so Jesus will be, his true son. The question is, if Jesus is the creator of all things, and if He is the owner, the heir, the firstborn, has rights to everything that's made, what has happened to everything that He's made? What's the state of His inheritance, so to speak? And we talked about this last week. I I won't go into great detail, Um, but if we were to use kind of like kingdom terms like we've been talking in, the throne is occupied with Jesus. He's the preeminent one. He's the greatest. He's the first. He is sitting on the throne, He is ruling, and 
uh, this world has been thrown into a rebellion, and His people and His creation are actively involved in treason. So, His inheritance is, is cursed, and His world is broken, and His people are running away from Him, not to Him, they're running away from Him. And so, if you're the Creator and the owner of all things, you kind of have two options at this point. You can scrap it. Wipe the dust off your hands and just say, we're going to start over. We're going to make all new things. You've got that option. He's got the power to do it. Or you can redeem. I like how one of my seminary professors put it, and I've said this before, but it's a great reminder. Um, The great news uh, in, in, in the Scriptures is that God, on the one hand, doesn't make junk. And at the same time, He doesn't junk what He makes. He's a God who redeems. Though he could judge, though the Scriptures could have stopped at the end of Genesis 3, even in Genesis 3 you get this hint of redemption, of the story beginning to turn, of what God is going to do to turn this, this world and this narrative around. And that helps us, you know, kind of as a segue into our next point, is, is what is this new creation that he's talking about? Um, let's think about the new creation this way. Think of it like marriage. And imagine, you know, either your wedding day past, or if you're not married, imagine your wedding day future. It's the end of the ceremony. The pastor has said, I now declare you husband and wife. You may kiss your bride. You sign the marriage license, and according to the state and in the eyes of God, you are legally married. You can't get more married then you are at that very moment. True? You are fully and 100% married. It's black or white. Either you're married or you're not. But at the same time, you would be an absolute fool to think in your first days or hours of marriage, you understand what it means to be a spouse, that you have got your head screwed on. You know exactly what what, what marriage is and what it's going to require of you. No one is an expert at marriage. That's the beauty of God's, God's design. He gives you the rest of your life to figure it out, right? The kingdom of, of God and this new creation that, that Jesus is doing is a lot like marriage. There, there's a point to where legally it's done. And you can't get more new. You can't get more saved. You can't get more secure in Christ than you legally are right now. But you'd be a fool to say, Oh, I understand this new creation. I know exactly what's, what's, what Jesus is doing, everything that's going to happen. In fact, the Scripture says the opposite. You have no idea the goodness that God has prepared for those who are in Him. Your mind cannot perceive it. It's that good. So where does this new creation begin? Because we, we know where the fall begins, Right? Remember in, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve ate, and just as sin entered the world through one couple and then bled into all of creation and cursed creation, so too the new creation begins with a person. It's the second Adam, not the first. It's the second Adam and his benefits, the newness, the goodness. Um, it too bleeds out into creation. That's why we call Jesus the second Adam. Notice what Paul calls uh, Jesus here in verse 18, the second part. He calls Jesus 
the firstborn from the dead. Not only is the firstborn of all creation, but now he's the firstborn of the dead. What does that term mean? You might be thinking um, in the Old and New Testament, there's several people in the Scriptures who have come back to life. Some have even suggested, you know, just coming off of a Jonah series that we did um, this past spring, some have suggested as a way of kind of explaining, you know, how Jonah lived in the belly of a fish for three days. They say it's allegory. Jonah actually died. And um, it's not real. The fish is not real. It's just allegory. And then God brought him back to life. That's how they kind of explain away the miracle uh, of the fish. And they say, actually, Jonah is the firstborn from among the dead. That's not true. Paul calls Jesus the firstborn from among the dead. You, say, you might say, well, what about Lazarus? Right? Jesus' friend. Uh, remember what happened to him? He died. Jesus was not around. Mary and Martha grieved, and they said, if you had been here, if you would just been here, you could have saved him. And Jesus used three words. Jesus used his mouth with just his words. He didn't roll the stone back. He didn't touch Lazarus. Again, with just the power from his words, he said three words in the English, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out, you know, draping in, in, in burial cloths, brought back to life. But here's what we need to realize, and, and maybe we didn't think about it this way. Um, the life that Lazarus was brought back to was this earthly life, meaning Lazarus was going to have to die again. Lazarus would enter the grave for a second time. He's unique in that way. He was dead. He was brought back to life, but he was brought back to earthly life. He's going to have to die all over again. How is, how is what happened to Lazarus different than what Paul is talking about here with Jesus? It's this. Jesus was not brought back to earthly life. Jesus was brought back to what we call the glorified, the new life. And he's the firstborn of it. In other words, what's happening in Jesus' resurrection and ascension is the first of its kind. We've seen nothing like it. Let me give one explanation. Remember, Jesus has, has died. He's been placed in the tomb. He has come out, been brought back to life, and now... In the span of 40 days, he's kind of showing himself to the disciples and in different ways. We have one story in John where he's on the beach with Peter and the disciples. And this is Jesus after the cross, after the tomb, after the resurrection. And what is Jesus doing? He's preparing fish on the beach for Peter and the other disciples. And he's eating. Let that shock you for a minute. Because you saw this guy alive, then you saw him die, and now he's eating food in front of you. He's not like that Jedi ghost that you see in, in Star Wars. He's not like this, this ghost figure that, that's got a form but no body. He's got a body, and he's eating. Thomas ran his fingers over, over Jesus' wounds. He's got scars. But at the same time, Gospel of John also tells us that right after um, Jesus' death and resurrection, the disciples were scared, and they didn't know what to do. So they locked themselves into an upper room, and they did that so nobody could come in. And what John says is, Jesus just appeared. So on the one hand, you have him eating food, 
You've got Thomas touching his wounds, but somehow, supernaturally, he appeared to the disciples in a locked room. Critical scholars say, oh, somebody let him in. Now, what John is trying to communicate here is something that Paul is trying to communicate to the church in Colossae, is that Jesus was not brought back to ordinary life. He's brought back to something new and something entirely different that we cannot wrap our minds around entirely because it's that new and it's that good, and he's the firstborn of it. It starts with Jesus. It starts with his death, and it starts with his resurrection. Well, that's, that's great for Jesus. <laughs> what about us? What's the scope of this new creation? How far is, it, is this going to go? And who's going to get brought in? I don't know if you've ever thought about the church this way. I don't know if you've even thought about it coming in this morning. But, but I want to invite you to think of, about, about the church and who we are in just a little bit different way. We poked at it in the confession and the assurance of the gospel, but now I want to scream it. He says, you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. He has, what he has done in his, in his new body in his new position, seated on the throne, he's decided to gather around himself a people. He has looked into this dark pit of traitors and rebels and treasonous people, and he said, I want that guy, and I want that girl, and I want that guy, and I want that girl. And before you have any thought of me, before you have any obedience in and of yourself, I am going to make you, I'm going to declare you new. I'm going to give you a new identity. So sure, so clean, so secure, it's eternal. Rust and moths can't touch it. Enemies can't kill it. And I'm going to call that group of people my church. I'm going to call them my body. I'm going to call them my hands and my feet. I'm going to be the head. But when people want to see me, if people want to experience me, look at my hands and feet. Look at what I'm doing through my people. That's who I'm calling to myself. Is that, is that how you think of yourself as the church, as a part of God's global church? A people that God has called out of darkness, out of treason, out of rebellion, not out of passivity, not out of neutrality, out of rebellion. And he says, I want you, you punk. And I want to love you. And though it may not seem real to you right now, you're a new creation entirely. And you get the rest of eternity to figure out what that looks like. That's who his people are. The scope goes beyond his church, his people. It goes into all of creation. God is not going to junk this world. God calls uh, what we're going to and what we're headed to the new heavens and the new earth. And this is somewhat hyperbole, at least in my mind, but you know, Christ came humbly in his first coming as a baby, as a child, but in his second coming, he's coming on a horse with a sword. It's going to look a whole lot different. And with fire and with judgment, he is going to purify not just us perfectly, but this world that we live in. This earth is going to be renewed. Um, do you know you're coming back here? Yes, this, this world, this age right now is not our home, but do you know that we are coming back? But there won't be hospitals. There won't be graveyards. 
We've gotten so used to the curse and so used to the fall, we can't imagine life without it. And Jesus says it's so good. It's going to be so awesome. Your your mind is, is just too finite to understand it right now. Everything is getting redeemed. Everything. Every atom, every valley, every mountain, every building, every person who's in Christ, fully redeemed, although it doesn't feel like it right this very moment. Um, Let me close with uh, a few points of application uh, this morning. If that is all true, if that is what Paul is preaching in in his, his letter, how then should we live? Um, first thought is this, you know, I, I, hear, I, hear this, I hear this a lot in, in conversations about culture, you know, the, the sacred-secular divide, the sacred-secular split, right? Have you ever heard those terms before? Um, here's what it's, 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 it's suggesting, is that there are some things that are, that are godly and good and spiritual, and those are what is sacred. But then over here, we have things that are absent of anything good spiritually. And, and those are what is, is secular. Uh, the, the former you should pursue, the latter you should avoid. Pursue the sacred, avoid the secular. And while at times in Scripture you do see that theme kind of pop up between, you know, the church and the world, um, I don't think that's what Paul preaches here. Um, I think there's a greater category that I want to put before you this morning that we need to have in our mind. It's not the sacred secular, but it's the sacred and the desecrated. Um, that word desecrated comes from the word sacred. Um, to desacred something is to treat something um, with, with violent disdain, right? Uh, to treat something with violent disrespect is to desecrate something. And here's why I I think that's more important for us than the sacred-secular discussion. Um, If if what Paul here is saying is true, if Jesus owns everything, if He created everything, He owns everything, every atom in this universe belongs to Him. That makes everything sacred by definition. That's His. But because the fall and the curse and our brokenness is real, we have taken things that God has made, we have taken sacred things, and we've desecrated them, right? We do this with money. We take something that's good, and we turn it into something we worship. Money's not bad. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Money's not evil. Ownership is good. There's commandments about ownership because ownership is a good thing. But we can desecrate that something God makes and and, and treat it with disdain. Um, We do that with food. We do it with work. We do it with intimacy. We do it with everything that God has given us. We take something that, that, that is good, that God has made, and we use it for purposes that God never intended. And in doing so, we desecrate it. We do that with marriage. We do that with family. 
And here's why I think that's important and why I want to keep that in the front of your mind even more than the sacred-secular divide. It's this. It's at some point we've got to see as, as God's church, if we are who Paul and Jesus say we are, these people that have been already brought in, um, these, these people um, that God has cleansed through His righteousness, the people that God has promised to love both now and forevermore, if that's true, then we've got to start seeing the brokenness and the darkness and everything that's wrong with this world as not something that we need to avoid, but as a possibility of something we can redeem. You see the difference? Sacred secular builds a fence. Sacred stays over here. Secular stays over here. Good here, bad here, and never the two intermingle. But if it's sacred and the desecrated, if that's our primary view of the world and this culture that we live in, that's not a fence, that's a gate. That's a door. That's an opportunity. One suggests passivity. The other suggests activity. And you say, well, how can you say that? How do you know that's true? That's what God did with you. That's what God did with me. He reached into the darkness, this realm of evil, this realm of rebellion, and he said, you, 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 and you. Before there's anything good in you, I'm reclaiming you. I'm redeeming you. I can junk you. I have the power and authority to do it, but I'm not because I'm a God who redeems. I'm not going to junk what I make, and I don't make junk. I love what I've created. And so to stay with it and to keep it, it's got to be redeemed. I'm going to redeem you. And by the way, you're my body. You're my hands and feet on earth, which implies what for us? Y'all, we got work to do. But it's a different kind of work. It's not work to get God's attention. It's not work to get God's favor. It's not work to try to get uh, God to look our way and say, oh, I'm very proud of you. It's a different kind of work. It's the work of the redeemed. Who would not want to be a part of the group that is called by, by the Creator to redeem this world into something good and into something better? Who wouldn't want to be a part of that group? called out, out of the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of His beloved Son, given the power of the Holy Spirit, placed in this world where everything that God has made is good but is being desecrated before our very eyes, do you not see our task in front of us? We can run, we can toss some grenades, we can criticize, or we can be His hands and His feet. We can be about the business of redeeming. And here's how I think that looks. There's this, there's this great divide between Sunday and Monday. You know, Sunday we come to worship, and then traditionally I think Monday we go to work. There's a way to make work worship. There's a way to make school worship. There's a way to make your hobby or what you love to do in your free time, worshipful. There's a way to desecrate it. There's a way to make it about yourself. There's a way to make money 
um, to be vain with your work or your job, or there's a way to make it kingdom-minded. Again, because of where you all work and where all of you play and where all of you live, you have access to neighbors, you have access to co-workers, you have access to people that it would take me 20 years to have access to. That is no coincidence. You are God's hands and feet. You don't need to go to a foreign country to have a mission field. You have one where you live, where you work, and where you play. So here's how that plays out. If you're an architect, this is slightly hyperbolic, but if you're an architect, yeah, there's a way to, you know, to work in such a way to, to, to make yourself known to be a, a famous architect, or you can create something with so much intentionality and so much artistic beauty that when Jesus comes back with his angels to cleanse and to purify this world, he stops in front of that building and says, not this one. Leave this one. Did y'all see this? Again, hyperbole. Did you see this? Even in architecture, the worship and the glory that went into this construction is phenomenal. Don't touch this one. If you drive down Preston and it grieves you to see them leveling these fields of trees and have just, in the quiet, you know, and on your own property, you go plant six trees. Jesus comes back and says, leave those. Leave those. Don't touch those. Those were built for the kingdom. Those are going to endure. Those are going to stay in the life to come. Don't you know that whatever your hobby is, whatever your job is, wherever you're placed, if it's sports, if it's medicine, if it's marketing, if it's legal work, if, if, if it's consultation, everything you, can, everything you do can be used for the kingdom, for the worship, and for the glory of God. And that's not over-spiritualizing it. If you're a plastic surgeon, repair the brokenness of this world. Jesus had scars, and if you use your, your medical degree to, to, to fix people with cleft palates or have experienced the brokenness of this world in a way that none of us struggle with, Jesus comes around and says, leave that. Leave a remnant of that scar. That was beautiful work. That was done unto me. Don't touch that one. Leave that one. If we're buried with Christ... If he says we die with him and we raised with him, you know what that also means? It also means that we're going to suffer with him. And God is very candid about this. He doesn't pull any punches in the scripture. He's very, very real with this. He says it's, it's going to hurt. It's going to be difficult. But let me give you that point on the horizon. It's this. This is the temporary life. This is the age that is going away. This one is temporary. Ecclesiastes, the writer, says this life, this life is like a vapor of vapors. You see it for a moment and then it's gone. It disappears. But the one that's to come, when the new creation is brought in fully, clearly, in its fullness, that one's permanent. There's no end date to that one. 
Aren't you glad that this life is the, is the temporary one and not the permanent one? Is that not our hope as believers, is that this one is temporary? That spot on the horizon is, is what? Is that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn among the dead. If what happens to Jesus happens to me, I'm going to bank on that. We are not without evidence. We are not without a living illustration of what this new creation looks like. It starts with Jesus. What happens to him happens to us. Where he goes, we go. And he's at the right hand of the Father. So are we fools? In the world's eyes, yes. But we've seen a new creation. We've seen something we've never seen before. And Jesus says, guess what? If you're in me, you get that too. So all we have to do is endure to conquer. Just endure. This life is the vapor. Get to the life that is to come. Until then, we got work to do, right? I look forward to doing that with you. Let's pray. Jesus, our King, we know that the grass um, will wither in a month or two. It's going to lose its color. It's going to be dry and brittle. And a lot of uh, the ground is going to turn brown. And we know that the flower is already faded. Um, the petals have shriveled and the blooms have bolted and turned to seed and gone back into the earth. They've lost their color and lost their beauty. But we know that the Word of God and you, O Christ, who are the living Word, you endure forever. We're so used to things being temporary, disposable, not permanent. But in you and in this new creation, everything is permanent. Help us to rest, to bank, to work towards that, and all for the glory of our Savior, King, and Brother, who is Christ. Amen.